One of the things that you easily pick up on as you read the Bible for years or days or is that God is in the business of using people who have failed. God is in the business of using people who have failed. Um, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the scripture from the New Living Translation, it says, Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. In order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. You see God choosing this? God chose things despised by the world. Things counted as nothing at all and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Verse 29, as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of the Lord. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, that is a gift of God. Why? So that we never take credit or in any way feel like we did God a favor, right? That God did this. And God has a way of taking the individuals that seem to be the most unlikely vessels to be used by Him, and He chooses them to work in as his instruments, why? Because he gets the most, the greatest glory that God could use somebody like me with all my failures, all my inadequacies, all the things that I can give God multiple reasons of why, God, you would never want to choose me. You would never want to use me. But God has a way of doing that. You know, Noah... Noah got drunk and disgraced himself with his daughters. Abraham lied twice uh, about his wife being his sister out of fear. Isaac, his son, did the same thing. Jacob, we talked about Jacob a few weeks, deceived his father and cheated his brother out of his birthright to name uh, one of few things about Jacob. David, what do we say about David? I mean, and his sin. The disciples all abandoned Christ at the crucifixion uh, out of fear. Peter denied Christ three times, denied Jesus three times out of fear. Mark bailed on Paul and Barnabas and the first missionary journey he went on. Look, those are just a sample. Go through the Bible. And you know, you've heard me say this before. One of the testimonies that I, I personally take is among many that the Bible is God's Word inspired is the fact that if I was writing the Bible, if I was going to sit down and write it, you know what? I would make sure everybody that's portrayed in the Bible had a pristine resume. No failures, no shortcomings, no sins. I mean, murderers, liars, we don't want them in there. That's not going to be good to advance this religion? No. God puts it all in there. But what he puts in there is his abiding 
faithful grace in those lives. And guess what? That's not some history book we can look back and say, oh, boy, I wish, wish, wish that God was available today. Listen, the Bible says He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same gracious God. And so we've been looking different times uh, this summer at different parts in the Old Testament and remind a scripture I've quoted a lot from Romans 15:4. for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Former days, we could say that's Old Testament, uh, was written uh, for our, this is New Testament, New Covenant people, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, by looking at their lives and God's faithfulness, it says that we might have hope. So we're going to look at the Scriptures and gain some hope today through looking at one of the premier big names, the heavyweights in the Bible, and that's Moses. And we'll look at chapter 2 in just a minute. But chapter 2, among other things in there of of Moses' life that we'll break down a little bit, is that what chapter 2, the latter part of chapter 2, talks about how Moses, when he was of, of a certain age, 40 years of age, that he murdered, remember he's living in Egypt, and we'll talk about that, but that's not familiar with you, but God's chosen deliverer, that he's going to, the mouthpiece that he's going to use to deliver his people out of the bondage that they're in Egypt, that uh, Moses, right before, right out of the gate, Moses commits a, 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 a terrible failure. He murders a fellow Egyptian, has to run for his life, flee from his life, and ends up living in the desert working for a future father-in-law for 40 years. And we'll break that down in a little bit. But here, what I love about the story of Moses, as well as any of these individuals, is it gives hope that, listen to this, it gives, it gives me hope, and it should give you hope, that God can use us even after we have failed. Even after we have failed. You know, talking about Moses, I love, and I've quoted this before because it's just such a good quote, but it's attributed to Dwight L. Moody. Talking about Moses' life, you can break it down into three forties. He died at 120, but Dale Moody said this, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking that he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was a nobody, and then he spent his third 40 years, the latter part of his life, discovering what God can do with a nobody. That's why I love Moses and the pattern of his life. And so, interestingly, it's from the New Testament that we gain some more information about Moses, and that's from Stephen. You remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7? He was the one that was the uh, first martyr of the church as he stood there bearing testimony to Christ, and he was stoned to death, and he helps us, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us in Acts 7, 23... That when Moses was 40 years old, that's where we learn that Moses was 40 years old from the New Testament. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And again, that's commentary of what we'll look at in chapter 2 of Exodus. And then it goes on to say in verse 30 that when he was 40 years, that he spent 40 years, 40 years had passed, and an angel appeared to him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. That's that burning bush experience. 
in a flame of fire in a bush. And then verse 22 says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. You remember Moses and the, there was a Pharaoh that was killing all the young boys and his mother put him in that, in that, that little basket and put him in God's hands and eventually he was brought into the house of Pharaoh and raised as a son of Pharaoh. And verse 22 says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. All right? So some, depending on your generation, I know we have Charlton Heston in our picture here of Moses, and I'm not quite sure that, that he looked like Charlton Heston, but that's all right. But nevertheless, he was a mighty man, and that's important that it says he was mighty in words and deeds. Words, because the first five books of our Bible, called the Torah, the Pentateuch, Penta, five, Pentagon, five sides, uh, Pentateuch, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are attributed to Moses being the author of those books. Now, normally, just like in, in any human writing, there's people that assist and, and, uh, and provide uh, material. But Moses was the essential uh, writer or recorder of those books of the Bible. But the Bible says that he was an educated man. He was a very educated man. He wasn't just some, you know, just some some guy living out in the in the desert somewhere. He was educated in all the mighty teachings uh, that Egypt and if you know anything about Egyptology, and I'm no expert. All right, so <laughs> don't. Uh, but you know that they were advanced in math and the sciences for their age. I mean, that just amazes people. Josephus is a Jewish historian. He's not, it's not inspired, but I found this really interesting of something Josephus tells us about Moses' life in one of the history books of Josephus called The Antiquities of the Jews. And again, although it's not inspired, it's still interesting because Josephus says that Moses was being groomed to be the next Pharaoh. Isn't that interesting? That Moses was being groomed to be the next king of Egypt because the Pharaoh at that time did not have a son. I know the movies and all that, but that's what Josephus says. Josephus says that Moses led a victorious Egyptian force against the Ethiopians. So he was a mighty warrior as well as, again, as, as uh, among other things of his intellect. So I just want you to get a sense that as we look at what happened to Moses and his choice, Moses wasn't just coming out of the, you know, the bumpkin, you know, places. I mean, he was living among the elite. I mean, and if we take Josephus, you know, what he said, that he was next in line to be the next Pharaoh of Egypt. And that's probably why Stephen called him a man of power in words and deeds. And so today's passage we're going to look at and this is the, the section where we see that Moses, as at 40 years of age when he stepped out and um, he uh, decided to side with the Hebrew slaves, 40 years, that's a long time. And, and again, as an Egyptian, uh, killing the Egyptian that was abusing or attacking this Hebrew. Now again, the book of Hebrews gives us another insight. Interesting, all these New Testament uh, gleanings on Moses and the Old Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. You know, chapter 11 is that the, we sometimes refer to that as the faith chapter. 
Well, here's a little secret. Every chapter is a faith chapter. But we call chapter 11 because it speaks about by faith. These men did this, by faith. And so we learn in Hebrews 11, verse 24 and 26, that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, verse 26, the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. A little commentary that's helpful. And so this morning we're going to review and gain some wisdom from the Scriptures. We're talking about failures. We're talking about uh, God using failures and why God uses failures. And so this morning, uh, the title of today's message, if you go ahead and put that on the screen because I just went out of my, I forgot what I titled it. God's faithfulness in our failures. I renamed it like five times. God's faithfulness in our failures. And I don't think there's a person here that in some measure in your life, there's not been some failure. If you're human, you've failed at some point in your life. But unfortunately, there are times in our life that some failures are, uh, they handicap us. They're debilitating. They, they end up becoming those places that we can never move beyond. And we begin to think, God could never use me. I know God loves me, but He doesn't really like me. I know he loves me because, you know, he has to. Right? But he really just tolerates me. No. If you're a child of God, you're God's chosen vessel. And God is not deterred by our failures. It just the failures in our life just serve as those signposts that, God, I need you. And I can't do it without you. And, and you know, we, we learn these lessons. You know, I, I think it would be interesting that if some of these lessons that we would learn, you know, how many times have you said, if I knew then what I know now? Listen, I'd be a, I'd be a billionaire because I would have bought stock in Apple when those guys were working out of their garage. Wozniak and Steve Jobs, you know, I would have bought, Right? Well, we want to draw encouragement from the Scriptures. Moses, as we'll see in just a minute, his first attempt at leadership, sensing God's call in his life, was a dismal failure. But here's the thing I want you to be reminded of, is that our failures cannot deter or thwart God's gracious covenant faithfulness towards his people. That's why I call this message God's faithfulness in our failures. God's faithfulness in our failures. This morning, we're going to look at three main sections. But as I was going over this again this morning, I'm going to split it in two because we won't be able to get to everything. And it's, I think, a good word for us to, to remember. So we're only going to look at part one today, uh, and then we'll pick it up and finish it next week. And I, I don't like doing that because sometimes I feel like the, the, the you know, the, the unction and the anointing is now. It's like, okay, I got to postpone it a little more next week, but I feel like this front end part, which is a little longer, is helpful, and we want to take our time and not be rushed a little bit. So if you think this is going, boy, this first point, he's really 
He's, he's going on a long time. Relax, okay? We're not going to be here till three, all right? So, uh, uh, but we want to look at this. So the first, the first way we're going to break this down, and this is probably all we're going to cover today, and there's, again, there's three points. We'll pick up the latter two next week. But number one, talking about God's faithfulness and our failures is that God's choice purpose in using our failures, okay? God's choice purpose in using our failures. That is that God uses imperfect instruments. That's us. That's why I read from 1 Corinthians 2 where those foolish things that God has chosen. God uses imperfect instruments who fail in their attempts to serve him. That's the people that God has chosen to work with. The people that have blown it. Now again, I'm not justifying to go out, you know, like some might just say, oh, we'll go out and just kind of run the red lights and do whatever. No, no, no. I'm talking to people, and I think the majority, if not everybody here today, that has a heart to serve God, but there's something in your life or maybe a series of things, and you've just kind of always running up against this wall of the enemy saying, you know what, God's done with you. God's finished with you. Just coast. Look, you can pray, read your Bible, give out some tracts, but you know, God really is done with you. Oh, you'll go to heaven. You're going to make, you know, it's not that. It's not a security of salvation, but really, God has moved on. Aren't you glad that the scripture affirms that God's faithfulness in our life never ends? That God, uh, you know, God may not always spare us from the consequences of our sin, but he is a faithful deliverer to the circumstances that have hindered us in our sin. And as Debbie said, God is faithful to take your mess and make it a message. But guess what? It's not your message. That's not your message. That's his message, that he's faithful. And we're going to see that with Moses this morning. So we want to look this morning at God's choice purpose in using our failures. What is his purpose? And so we're going to look at verses 11 through 15 of uh, Exodus. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were fighting, were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh Uh-oh. Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. In verse 15, When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well, and it goes on. But that's kind of the gist of everything. And, and you know, and as I said, these lessons that we often learn, uh, they come later in life. They're like, Lord, this would have been really helpful 20 years ago. But Moses, 40 years old, learned a valuable lesson. And what I want to look at this morning and this is probably going to take the majority of our time, 
is as we look at these different, we're going to look at six ways that Moses failed. And there are really six ways that whatever your situation is, they're really the six ways that we often have failed in our own lives or reasons why that we fail. And we want to break these down a little bit and look at these six different ways of Moses' failure and obviously draw application and and, and, and God's Word. So these are God's choice purposes in using our failures. Learn where we got it wrong. Learn where we got it wrong. You know that I read the story of this board of directors at a bank recognized that a young cashier was, uh, had great abilities, great talent. He had a future, uh, and the bank uh, president was looking for a successor who was about to retire. And one day this young man went to the president and asked him, he said, as you know, I'm to follow you as president of this bank. I'd be grateful for any advice that you might have. He's kind of one of those up-and-coming guys. And the older man, the president of the bank, said, son, sit down. I've got two words for you. Right decisions. The young man thought for a moment and replied, well, thank you. That's very helpful, sir. But how does one go about making right decisions? And then the older president said, experience. Well, that's helpful too, sir, but how does one go about gaining experience? And the older man said, two words, wrong decisions. How do you make right decisions? Oftentimes, it's the wrong decisions. You know, there's a lot of things in ministry, almost 40 years, and I can write a book on what not to do, what not to do, right? What not to do would probably outweigh what to do, but that's the way it is. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to get stuck And just say, well, that's it. That's it. No. As long as there's breath in our lungs, there should be hope in our hearts. And so look at these six ways where Moses failed and see if any of these you can relate to in areas where you have fallen short. Number one, we fail when we impulsively act on right commitments based on emotions. I had to make them a little smaller, so hope you can read that okay. We fail when we impulsively act on a right commitment. The thing is right, but it's based on emotions in the moment. And that's what Moses did. I mean, Moses enjoyed all the benefits of Egypt. I mean, second in line, if Josephus is correct, I suppose that, you know, you could criticize him and say, you know, it would have been better if you just stayed put and tried to help from the inside. But we know from Hebrews 11.24, it you know, says that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He made a, his commitment was right. We agreement on that. It was a good thing, but it was impulsive. And some of the areas where we have failed have been oftentimes trying to do the right thing but done in an impulsive way. And we'll see that. That's the case of what happened with Moses. Zeal without wisdom. He saw the injustice of this Egyptian beating a poor Hebrew slave. It made him angry. He said, that's wrong. He stepped in to, to, to do something, that impulsive moment where he thought his time had come to liberate the people of God. This is the moment they're going to see him action and they're going to rally 
didn't quite work out that way. In fact, it was a disaster. Impulsive. Remember Peter when he was in the garden and they came to arrest Jesus? What did he do? He had a conceal and carry permit and he pulled that sword out. Listen, when he cut his ear off of Malchus, one of the, what was he, one of the uh, guards that had come to arrest Jesus, he wasn't aiming for his ear. He was going for his head, right? That was an impulsive action, impulsive. Proverbs eleven fourteen says and reminds us that where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is Safety. Proverbs eleven fourteen. You know, again, obviously you pray about decisions. You seek the wisdom of God. And I would say this is where sometimes people shortchange themselves is they don't ever seek wise, godly counsel with, with people that are a little further spiritually down the road than you are. That's why God has placed leaders in the body who have a concern for your life and soul to seek counsel. So when somebody just, you know, comes and says, well, God told me this, to do this and do that, and if they're not interested in any counsel from me, I'm just like, well, okay, who am I going to veto God? God said, right? Who am I? I'm just a little pastor and, you know, I can't do that. I'm like, go your way. Another way that we fail, reason for our failure, is not only acting impulsively that gets us in a mess, but secondly, we fail when we attempt to do God's work by human strength. We're trying to do God's work, trying to do God's will in our own strength. We need to keep Zechariah... 4, 6, you're like, what in the world is Zechariah? Is that even a book in the Bible? Yes. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now here's the, here's the verse. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, when we think, you know what, I've got the talent, I've got the education, I've got the money, whatever it is. And you're like, I can do this. And you step out, instead of really trusting and relying upon God, oh, we want God to kind of rubber stamp, you know, what we already decided. We haven't really prayed. We just kind of pray a little, you know, now lay me down to sleep kind of prayer. We just want God to kind of rubber stamp what I've done, and we're going to go out. We're going to make this decision. We're going to go and buy this and pursue this or Whatever it is. And then we realize that my strength is insufficient for this task. Charles Swindoll, who great Bible teacher, makes a comment in his book on Moses, believes that at this time when Moses did this, that he believes that Moses had... Uh, come to realize God's call and purpose on his life. Because there's just something implied that he identified with these Hebrews. And that, that action that he made uh, implies that there was a sense that he had a call of God in his life. But the problem was, the problem was 
not in his commitment, not that he was hearing from God, but his problem was is that he didn't bother to seek what God wanted to do, God's way and God's timing. We're going to talk about timing in just a moment here. There's no, there's no indication at all that Moses sought God in any of this. It's just like, hey, I'm ready to do it, and I'm going to do it now. You ever known people that always are impulsively jumping from one thing to another? Sold my house, going overseas. Well, have you ever been overseas on a... No, I'm going to be a missionary. Have you ever been on a... No, no, never have been. But I sold my house, ready to go. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. There's things that, you know, you might want to make a trip to the DR. You know, you might want to know, is this your thing? I mean, whatever. But that impulsive of seeking God, our zeal to do something for God is good, but if we are relying on what I can bring to the table, what I can do, and not on God's power, nine times out of ten or ten out of ten, we're going to fall flat on our face because it's all about me. You see, God is in this glory thing. He wants glory. I mean, not because he's just some egomaniac, because his very nature is glorious. And God, again, wants to take pleasure in working through our lives, even in our failures, so that his power might be seen and revealed. And people look at your life, my life, and they see God's working in your life. And they say, well, I know that person. I know that person. And I know it must be the Lord doing that because they could never do that in their own strength or power. I know them too well. That's God. That's God's spirit working in their life. There's a third area where we... Let me read, I'm oh, sorry, I missed a scripture there related to that last point. 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5 from the New Living Translation. We need to have this God confidence. Good scripture, New Living Translation. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. God doesn't worry about your ability. He just wants your availability. Are you available to be a vessel that he can work through? Thirdly, not only acting in our own strength, but thirdly, we fail when we become more concerned about what others think than what God thinks. When we become more concerned about what others think than what God thinks. Verse 12, interesting little phrase I'm not sure how it is in the other translations, but the ESV, verse 12, it says, Moses, when he saw what was being done, look what it says. It says, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he knew this wasn't going to be something that was going to be popular. He was looking to make sure that what he was doing, uh, he was more concerned about being caught by men than pleasing God. And sometimes that can be a terrible motivation of why we do things. The fear of man. Worry about pleasing men. Pleasing people. I know a lot of people, pastors. And again, I, I, my own weaknesses at seasons and times. Just, I think it's a human thing. But, you know, you don't really. It's an odd person that just seeks to live life displeasing people. You say, well, I know some. 
That's their goal in life, just to make my life, well, I'm not talking about them. I'm saying most of us want people to like us. You want to please people. And sometimes, sometimes you can be more concerned about making them happy and like you than really what God thinks about this situation. Because you know that if I choose what God wants to do in this situation, they may not be so happy with me. But are you going to stand before them or stand before the Lord? Are you giving an account to their life or to the Lord? 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so whether we are at home or away, make it our aim. Make it your aim to please Him. Holy Spirit, I want to please you. I want to please you in my life. And I know, Lord, this pressure, this decision, and sometimes we make those decisions that end up being failures because we feel that pressure. Listen, not original with me. I think first time I ever heard it, I heard Charles Stanley, always obey God, always trust God, and leave Him with the consequences. Always do the right thing before the Lord. Because if you can't, if you won't do what is right, God cannot bless you. You see, when you're faithful, God blesses you that you're faithful in a little. What's that kingdom principle? Faithful in the little, God will bring much, right? That's a law of the kingdom. Fourthly, we're learning from Moses not only to be, shouldn't be concerned about what others about others than what God thinks, but fourthly, we fail when we impetuously, impulsively attempt to do God's work at the wrong time. I'm going to spend a little time, no pun intended, here, because I think this is really where sometimes we fail the most often. We're trying to do a good thing in, in, our, in our Christian walk, something to honor the Lord, a decision, a, a, a project, whatever it is. Uh, but yet, it's just not the timing of God. A lot of times people in church come and they, they want to do certain things. And, I, and I've learned to just say, well, let me pray about it, let me think about it. Well, it's a good thing, but now's just not the time to do it. And sometimes they don't like that. Sometimes it's like, well, they want to know, well, when is it? I say, well, maybe a little further down the road. So we want to know, Lord, if I do this, what is your time? And it's important to understand the, what the Bible teaches us about time. The Bible says in Galatians 5.25 that if we live by the Spirit, what does it say? Let us keep in step with the Spirit. That means we want to know God. We want to know your timing. We don't want to run ahead. And we don't want to run behind. Keep in step. That means walking in that guidance and counsel of God's timing. And you know, the Bible's filled with people who acted impulsively, but the season of the time was completely wrong. You remember when God had given a promise to Abraham and Sarah of a child? What was it, eight years? I mean, it just went on and on. Nothing was happening. And they decided to help God out. And Abraham and Hagar slept together and produced, a, she had produced a child, and his name was Ishmael. And if you know anything about history, you know we're still dealing with 
Ishmael today. That's the lineage that Muslims trace their roots back to Abraham. Impulsive. That was not God's way. That was not God's method. God doesn't need our help. How about King Saul? King Saul had several opportunities, but one of the moments, 1 Samuel 13, is when he got, in, he got impatient waiting. They're getting ready to go to a big battle. Samuel, in this period of time, is functioning as a prophet and priest. Those two offices later were separated, but Samuel, in this particular dispensation of the Old Testament, he's functioning in a dual office of prophet and priest. He got in, Saul got impatient to, uh, for Samuel to offer the sacrifice to commit their endeavors to the Lord. Samuel was held up at Champion's Gate in traffic. I don't know where he was. But God designed it in such a way that he hindered Samuel from being there because that was a test. And what do tests do? They bring out defects. And that test brought out Saul's impatience. And Saul did something that the law said was a clear violation and brought displeasure. Saul just said, give me that sacrifice. I'll do it myself. And that brought the end of his kingship. God in essence, turned his back on Saul, rejected Saul. Why? He acted impulsively. He didn't know the time. But in a positive sense, I think about David. Remember the story of David is so illustrious. But as David, God had ordained David. You know, David had three anointings in his life. One was Samuel among his brethren, later among his tribe, and later anointed as king before the whole house of Israel. And that's an interesting study to break down in itself. We learn some things about God's workings in our life. But there was an opportunity when David was being chased down by Saul, and he was on the run from King Saul, who had the kingship. David had the anointed. God had rejected the king. And he had an opportunity a couple of times that Saul was vulnerable and David and his men could have struck him and killed Saul in those moments. But he chose not to because he had the godly wisdom to know that that was not God's time. That when it came time to respond, God would deal with the situation. That even though it looked like, you remember one time Saul was in the cave doing a little business of nature? That's what the Bible says. Doesn't say it that way, but anyway, that's. And David and his men said, This is it, man. This is it. This is God. You ever have somebody do that? Because the situation looked good and say, This is God. They don't know more about God than a lizard, you know? But David said a set of words that oftentimes get used in different ways. But he said, I shall not touch God's anointed. Because he knew that he was not going to act impulsively and seize. He knew, and he knew by faith, that God had made a promise, right? And had anointed him king. He just needed to wait for God in God's timing 
to take care of the situation. That's where we oftentimes blow it. We act, we do things, and we don't know the time, the timing of God. I want to take a little, just a little side trip, just briefly. In the Greek, Greek language, the New Testament is written in Greek, there's two words that are used for time in the Greek. One is the word chronos, it'll be on the screen, chronos, that's uh, the word we get, uh, chronology. Chronos is the forward propelling of time that we measure with clocks, watches, calendars. This is chronos, this watch, chronological, the days. There's that kind of time. Where are you going to be at 1 o'clock? we got to meet at 1.30. I mean, what's happening tomorrow? That, that's that linear time, chronos. And the Bible uses that. I'll give you a couple examples of chronos in the Bible. Look at, yeah, John 5, 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, man, there at the, uh, the, 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 um, in the temple, uh, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, chronos in the Greek. That means he had been there a long time, days, months. That's how the word is used. He said, do you want to be healed? Do I have another one up there? Was it Hebrews? Remember in the writer of Hebrews said, for, for though by this chronos, by this time, in other words, by these amount of days, you ought to be teachers. Meaning like, you're 35 years old, you should be out of fifth grade, right? By time, by this time, chronos. Time. That's how we think. It's time. I feel the time. You know, I need to do this. It's late. I got to go. But there's a second word that's an important word. I don't want you to miss it. And that's the word kairos. Kairos is another Greek word, and that speaks of time that we might would call it a season or opportunity. Kairos. Give you a couple examples of that in the scriptures. In, uh, what is it, Mark. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time. In the Greek, it's not chronos, it's kairos. Meaning, the opportunity, the season, the period is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Look at, uh, I think, John. I have a scripture from John 7, Jesus said, talking about the word kairos, Jesus said to them, my time, my season, my opportunity has not yet come. But your time, your kairos is always here. Because of, again, he's using those two different words. Now here is the connection for us. What, is, what were we saying earlier? We fail when we impetuously, impulsively attempt to do God's work at the wrong time, we need to have the discernment to know, is this the season, is this the kairos of God in this situation? Because I can get real impatient. Lord, I'm 45 years old and life is passing me by. Come on, speed it up. Let's go, because we feel that linear time, the chronology moving along. <coughs> and sometimes, 
That'll get us in trouble. What we want to know, by God's Spirit, we want to know, God, is this your kairos moment for me to do this? Is this the season? Is this the opportunity? It may be good. Every, all your little ducks are all lined up. I don't know why we line up ducks, but anyway. I, you know, everything's all lined up. Everything looks good. And just say, you know what? There's been times like that in my life. There's been times when I ignored the, the kairos. Because I was, I was on chronos time. I got impatient. The times when I thought, you know... It's all lined up, but I'm not sensing that this is the right time to do this. That may take you to the brink of signing papers or doing whatever it is. But when you and I violate the Kairos season that God in His sovereignty has said, that's what Moses did. Moses was appointed by God. Moses was going to be the deliverer of his people out of Egypt, right? All those things were going to happen. But what did he do? He wasn't operating in Kairos time. I'll see you. Uh, let me show you a scripture where these two things are put together. Luke chapter 12, verse 54 through 56. You see where these two are put together. Jesus is teaching. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. What are they doing? He's saying, you know the chronos of when things happen. You can read those things. But then he tells them, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the chronos the time, appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present kairos time? Do you see that, what he's saying? You're good at knowing it's time to plant, time to heart, you know. But here I, it's in essence Jesus is saying, here I am in your presence. This is the sovereign time of Messiah, and you're blinded to the season that God has before your very eyes. 1 Peter 5, 6, great promise says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper, guess what? Kairos, season, opportunity, He may exalt you. I want the Kairos seasons of God in my life. I want them in this church. Instead of just that pressure of the clock, the ticking. I've got a clock. I've had it at my house. It was in my office. And it has the loudest tick. Sherry got up looking in the middle of the night, wondering what animal was running around there ticking. And it, was, it just has a tick, a loud tick. And we feel that. We feel that. I'm getting older. Maybe I've just reached this place where I'm just kind of waiting to die. No, 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 no. Don't wait to die. Live. Live. Go out in a blaze of glory and life. Know the Kairos seasons. You see, let's wait for the Kairos opportunities. Moses missed the opportune season. 
and he fell flat on his face. Fifth, we'll go, the, there's just two more real quick. Attempting to do God's work at the wrong time. Fifth, we fail when we try to cover up our sin and hide it from God and others. Look at Exodus 2, verse 12. He looked this way and that, seeing no one, struck down to the Egypt, struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. But apparently there were some witnesses. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, and we see that interaction between those Hebrews, verse 14, Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. Listen, the Bible says that what you try to hide, Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Let's be honest, guys. Sometimes the reason we have failed has been because of our sinful actions. God is not defeated by your sin. But what He wants you to do is to confess your sin. Confess, God, I missed the mark. I blew it. I was wrong. Forgive me. Set my feet back on the right path. Remember the Psalm 51, David's great psalm that's attributed to him after his adultery with Bathsheba? And it was a prayer of repentance. God, do not take your spirit away from me. Return unto me the joy of my salvation. That's, he said, you know, look, God, you're not impressed by pomp and ceremony and sacrifices, but a broken and contrite heart you will not turn away. Failure, failed people should have broken and contrite hearts. Because we say, God, I've done this all on my own. I need your spirit. I need your power. I need your work in my life. And the last is we fail when we assume that others, others' hearts are receptive when they're not. What do I mean by that? Let's go back to Acts 7.25 where Stephen helps us. He said that Abraham, Moses, Moses, verse 25 of Acts 7, supposed, presumed, that his brothers would understand. You ever did that? You ever acted what you believed was a righteous cause? You're going to do a righteous thing, a godly thing. Right? You're going to, you're going to operate in the biblical principles. You've prayed, whatever, and you're going to do this. And guess what? You go to that person, and you think, if I just lay out the truth, because everybody loves the truth, right? Nobody's going to be offended. And you just, you just go to them in truth, and guess what? It's a disaster. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Verse 27, But the man who was wronging his neighbor turned and said, well, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You ever tried to do the right thing and within a nanosecond you're the enemy now? Huh? You're like, wait a minute. What? What? How did this happen? 
I was trying to do a godly thing. I was trying to act in a godly, spirit-filled way, and all of a sudden now the tables and the guns are turned on me. That's what happened to Moses. He thought they would understand. Why? I go back to that Kairos. The Kairos season, the Kairos time. Moses assumed on his own self, rushed in. And when we do that, it always is disastrous. Well, we're going to stop there this morning. Next week, we're going to continue to look at this and break down some more here. But don't miss, don't miss the wonderful truth that God is faithful in your failures and my failures. Again, sometimes the consequences. David, David was not delivered from the consequences of his sin. I'm all for, you know, Brother Paul is a chaplain in the, uh, at Hardy Prison. A lot of brothers in the prison, right, Paul? A lot of, a lot of born-again brothers. Former murderers, rapists, you name it. Delivered by God, saved, born again, going to heaven. But guess what? They're not going to be delivered from the consequences of their sin. Sometimes you and I are still paying the price of the consequences. But don't let that become, be like Jacob. Remember Jacob? We talked about Jacob. Let that limp, that defect, that thing that happened, that mess, make that mess a message, a test, a testimony. Right? Where God, instead of it being a badge of shame, you say, that's where the grace of God saved me. Maybe I'm not talking about salvation, but I'm saying saved you so that you can move forward in the purposes and plans of God. Don't buy into the lie and the deceit of the enemy who only comes to rob, kill, and destroy. That you're finished, you're done. If people only knew, don't worry about that. There's one who knows everything about you. Everything. And he says, you're still my servant. You're still my choice servant. And I'm going to do things in your life. I'm going to reveal myself in your life if you'll just let me do it. Get yourself out of the way. Let God do it.